This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this last day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Stuart Kelly. I'm a writer and critic with The Scotsman and The Guardian and The Times. And I'm rather humbled to be here, not just with Rachel, who is wonderfully signing the event, but with Robert McFarlane. Um, Robert is the author of three works of natural history, reportage, mythopoesis, um, and one academic volume. His new book is The Old Ways, which is the kind of end of an unofficial trilogy. So please welcome Robert McFarlane. There's going to be four short readings across the hour. Um, Robert, do you want to just kick off with a, a bit of a quick reading from the book? I will, yes. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very, very much for coming. And uh, I've uh, dialed up the atmospheric rain for the uh, outside-inside <laughs> feel. I've got a few images which, uh, we, we, which I'll sort of move through as they come up in our discussion. And we may have to zip through a few because they won't sync with what we're saying. We'll take it as it comes. but. Um, I'll just have this as a, as a kind of archetype image to, to kick us off, and I'll, I'll read you just a few paragraphs from the opening of the book, which if you haven't read it, which most of you will not have done, will give you some sense of its project and interests. So, humans are animals, and like all animals, we leave tracks as we walk. Signs of passage made in snow, sand, mud, grass, dew, earth, or moss. The language of hunting has a luminous word for such mark-making, foil. A creature's foil is its track. We easily forget that we are track makers, though, because most of our journeys now occur on asphalt and concrete, and these are not substances easily impressed. Always everywhere people have walked, writes Thomas Clarke in his enduring prose poem in Praise of Walking, veining the earth with paths visible and invisible, symmetrical or meandering. And it's true that once you begin to notice them, you see that the landscape is still webbed with paths and with footways, shadowing the modern-day road network or meeting it at a slant or perpendicular. Pilgrim paths, green roads, drove roads, corpse roads, trods, lays, dikes, drongs, sarns, snickets. Say the names of paths out loud and at speed, and they become a poem or write. Holloways, bustles, chutes, driftways, lichways, ridings cartways, carnies, causeways, here paths. Paths and their markers have long worked on me like lures, drawing my sight up and on and over. The eye is enticed by a path and the mind's eye also. The imagination cannot help but pursue a line in the land, onwards in space but also backwards in time to the histories of a route and its previous followers. I would guess I've walked perhaps 7,000 or 8,000 miles on footpaths so far in my life. More than most, perhaps, but not nearly so many as others. Thomas de Quincey estimated Wordsworth to have walked a total of 180,000 miles or so. Wordsworth's notoriously knobbly legs, pointedly condemned in de Quincey's catty phrase by all female connoisseurs, were magnificent shanks when it came to passage and to bearing. I've covered thousands of foot miles in my memory, though, because when, as most nights, I find myself insomniac, I send my mind out to rewalk paths I've followed, and in this way can sometimes pace myself into sleep. So that sets us on our way anyway. Thank you. Can we 
begin by talking about, oh, is that okay? Can we begin by talking about the extent to which this is the end of a trilogy? That in your first book, Mountains of the Mind, you were engaging with a landscape which was un inhuman, which was dehumanized. And gradually across um, the wild places, there was a sort of rapprochement with man's link to nature. And in this one, all the places are things which people have inscribed on the earth. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that rapprochement with the human element of landscape? Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, these three books have ta taken me uh, 11 years or so, and uh, in their full form, i.e. their unedited form, half a million words. Uh, fortunately, I didn't inflict that on anyone other than my editors and my friends. But, um, and, and yeah, they've, uh, the, the, a commute has happened from, from the high and the lonely and the remote and the trackless Snow is a brilliant substance at renewing originality. It falls yeah. and, and erases track. And I, I, th clearly that's one of the reasons I'm very drawn to it. Um, but, but actually then I've gone from high altitude to sea level and from trackless snow to, to the beaten path and, and slowly learned to find as much that is interesting in humanized um, landscape as, as in that, that quite, I think now I look back and think quite young man's urge to, um, to get high, really. In terms of the, the opening paths and the chalk landscape, can you talk a bit about the sort of ancientness of these chalk landscapes? Well, we don't, it's, it's all disputed. So um, the Eckneald Way, which is one of the paths I walk at the very beginning of the book, it runs close to my home. I leave by a new field path, then a which joins to a Roman road, which intersects with the Eckneald Way. Um, which crosses the M11, um, <laughs> uh, and that early juxtaposition of the of, of the of the arguably ancient and the the very modern uh, come, come, came to be a kind of insignia of the book. And of course, the inescapability of the contemporary, even when you're questing, as Edward Thomas does, and as I to a certain extent do for for the deep past. But we don't know much about how old some of these chalk paths are. The Ickneald Way was often claimed as one of the oldest paths in the country, um, probably um, five thousand years old. But we now think that might be the wish fulfillment of 19th century antiquarians who, who wanted an older landscape or the marks of an older landscape than, than were actually there. Uh, and it's, pr it's probably post-Roman. It's probably Anglo-Saxon. We can't tell because paths are difficult to date, except for something like the sweet track, which is made of um, uh, trunks. And so um, uh, dating can give us an astonishingly precise. It can tell us the season of the year in which the sweet track was laid. So. All paths have their histories, some are more disputed than, than others, but we are in love with the idea of ancient paths. I think, I think one thing about the Ickneald Way, which is almost a sort of theme throughout the book, is that the path, contrary to what one, one might think, has no beginning, has no end. Can you just elaborate on that motif in it? Yeah, well, um, I, I, I suppose um, one of the things I tried I, I experienced while walking these paths. So the, the, the book's logic of navigation and motion and project becomes to set out and walk these paths and see where they lead and what they join with. And that idea of paths joining and relating in both in the sense of telling narratively but also connecting place to place and people to people is, is, is the book's interest and its, uh, uh, and, and its structure. Um, it begins on the chalk and chalk is, is what we mark but it's also what we mark with. It's this weirdly yeah. reciprocal substance that we that is one of our oldest writing tools. And, and because I, I am interested in how we, we mark our landscapes, but how they, they mark us back, it was, it was another obvious reason um, to, to start there. Um, 
and, and, and in the branching and haphazard way of, of the book, I've now completely forgotten where I began. Ah, <laughs> which is good because it was a question about the lack of beginning. The and, lack of beginning. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the absence of ends. Um, uh, paths don't end, really, because they always meet another. I mean, this is what I discovered. And there's that wonderful Robert Frost poem, uh, The Road Less Traveled or The Road Not Taken, which I quote at one point in the book, um, two, two paths diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both, and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down yeah. one, as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. But there is a line later in that where he says, knowing how way leads on to way. Ways lead on, they don't end. Tell me a bit about the legibility of, of landscape this way. I mean, because there's, the chalk one is quite an obviously legible landscape, but other ones in the book are far less able to be simply read. Yes. Well, um, I see we have a rather a wonderful marine sway to our, um, uh, to our image here. But, um, but if, I, if I just move, we're still actually on the Icknield Way, but I, I'm very interested in how paths are made in, 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 in transient substances here. I was walking the Icknield Way and, and passed through this flower meadow. And those of you who know Richard Long, the land artist's work, may, yeah. I mean, this, this, this almost is Richard Long's 1967 work, A Line Made by Walking. Uh, it is a line made by walking. It just happens to be a very much a living line that is, that is kept alive by the passage of, um, of, of, of walkers' feet. So I became fascinated by the, the inadvertent acts of, of land art, as it were, that, that path making which is often a very functional act, has, has bestowed upon, uh, upon our places. So here, I mean, this, this will be gone when, when, when the cups are gone, as it were. But the book also moves on to water as a substance which doesn't hold mark, but paradoxically does, or co contradictorily does hold part. Can, can we just go straight on to that then? The, the, the whole idea of which, I mean, it's called a journey on foot, <laughs> but it isn't exactly a journey on foot, but it's also a journey on boat. Um, and the fact that the sea does have paths, that it does have navigable, legible ways. When did you come to that sort of conclusion that the path didn't actually end on the shore, but continued out into the sea? Well, um, I should, yeah, the, the subtitle of the book is, is A Journey on Foot. And I, I felt slightly uh, tre treacherous naming it that, because I felt there are these two chapters which occur on boats, but I couldn't really call it A Journey on Foot and Sometimes on My Bottom, which... Um, <laughs> which was the alternative, but I ran it past the publishers and they said, no, no, we got to, but um, uh, the, well, there's a, there's somewhere in the audience is, the, is one of the people, Pat Law, who, uh, a wonderful sailor um, and artist who really um, helped me to arrive at this idea of the, of, the, of the sea roads, which many of you will know about, which I, I write a lot about in the book. Um, and the, I mean, there is, there is much to say about the sea roads, but we know really that uh, there are paths of long usage on water as, as there are on land. It's just that because water doesn't archive record in the way that chalk does, uh, um, they're, we, we, they're invisible to us because our wake dissolves seconds or minutes after we have passed that point. And yet they can be these seaways which have been used for thousands of years, their roots can be pieced back together painstakingly and have been pieced back together, though actually quite recently in archaeological history. Um, and so there's, for example, the this, this set of sea roads and seaways that I become very interested in are, are those running from uh, the west coast of Scandinavia, Orkney, sorry, the Shetlands, Orkney, across to the Outer Hebrides, down through the Minch, and then all the way down the Atlantic facade, eventually reaching to Galicia, to Galicia and yeah. beyond. They're astonishingly connective, a web, again, a web work of, and that's of tracks. Sort of, that sense of the sort of pelagic kingdoms that... Yes. Um, 
you know, if you turn the map upside down, you can see how easy it would have been to move around those coasts in a way that we've become almost kind of mentally landlocked. Um, so that kind of break away. How did you transition between them, between the, the foot walk and the... Well, there, yeah, um, that may... Oh, this is just a lovely um, chalk image, not taken by me. I'm, I'm drastically incompetent with, um, with, with anything to do with optics. But this, uh, is, this is actually on the North Downs, but it really ca catches that eye-leading path, the lightning strike of the, of the chalk. Um, I, I was really taken off onto water by means of a sort of transitional path, which is called the Broomway, which is one of the early chapters in the book. Uh, and the Broomway is a, is a tidal path that runs from the coast of Essex up to Falness Island. And you walk onto it by when it's low tide, obviously, because otherwise you drown. Um, and you, you can only walk onto it when tide times and firing times, because the MOD control this area and fire out over it coincide to permit safe passage. But rather, I mean, to me, rather movingly, it exists. It is a right of way that despite um, the, 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 the neutral obligations of, of the sea uh, uh, upon it, and despite the MOD's control of it, it exists. And its, it's uh, privilege as a right of way is respected and marked on the map. And you can walk it, though the MOD don't want you to. You walk out along a causeway and you wait and this takes you out over the, the black grounds off the Essex coast. These are the, these are the muddy, uh, as it were, littoral that, that really will catch you and suck you down. You go out over this, this causeway from the mainland and you wait for the tide to recede. And it's very strange waiting for the, the, the ocean to pull back so that you can walk further out into it. And eventually you, you reach this hard sand and then you walk up and on along this hard sand, about half a mile offshore, and you pray that the moon is not knocked from its orbit, and, or more realistically, you pray that you've done your tide calculations correctly. Um, and uh, we had an absolutely extraordinary walk over what came to seem like a, a mirror world, really, uh, this uh, strange reflective surface on which we, my friend and I, trod and found ourselves doubled uh, like like playing card kings, as I as I say in the book, and that took us up to to Falness Island, um, and then eventually from there the book moves onto full full water. Um, there's, there's three things I'd like to take from that chapter, which is the most astonishingly poetic part in it. The first is the connection between paths and trespassing. Um, can you discuss a little bit the, what trespass means to you? Huh. Um, well, so somebody, went, somebody said to me at a reading recently, he said, uh, you, uh, you really ought to unleash your inner trespasser more. Um, I think I do have an inner trespasser, but I also have a very, uh, uh, an, an English respect for owned land, which I despise in myself. Um, and is that why you went with the Marxist lawyer? <laughs> oh, yeah, so my companion on the, on the Broomway is, a, is, is perhaps the only Marxist tax lawyer in London, as I say in the book, <laughs> possibly the world. Um, he's six foot seven inches tall and very thin and, uh, and, and very red. Uh, so, yes, he, he, he overcomes my, my instincts to respect boundaries. But, um, well, you can't write a book about paths without talking about trespass and, and access a little. And there are, the, the Broomway chapter is mirrored by a later chapter in the book, which is set in Palestine. Um, and they're both really chapters about access and about what paths 
allow us to do in terms of not just thinking and being and feeling, but also seeing and reaching, um, which are crucial to the book. But that trespass has an almost metaphysical aspect as well. You know, when you're describing the broomway, it is very like the kind of Celtic thin places. It's a place where the real world bleeds into an imaginary world. Um, that seems quite an important theme throughout this book, that as you're walking, you're not just walking across, but sort of between worlds. Between or into, and the figure of the, the mirror, that skin that you saw me walking on, um, becomes a, a, I tried to allow it to become a trope in the book, uh, of, almost of walkers on the underside of, of a world um, who are pressing through into ours or in whose feet we are, we are walking. And that idea of frontier crossing uh, of, of, of a, a, a non-political kind, but a, an elemental or a geological or uh, a spiritual kind preoccupies, has preoccupied me for, for, for throughout these books, but particularly in this one, that, that continents of a kind exist within countries of a kind. I think we should have the next reading now, if that's... Yeah. <coughs> um, probably we've, we've moved off the chalk, so I'll, I'll skip the, the chalk reading and I'll, 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 I'll read from one of the sea chapters and it's uh, it's uh, sailing these open boats in the Outer Hebrides with this wonderful man called Ian Stephen, a poet and a sailor who was really my um, I mean I'm, I'm poor on the water uh, uh, and he is magnificent and the book is filled with guides, it's filled with people who know their landscapes and their seascapes astonishingly well and intimately and Ian was, was my guide and teacher to, for the seaways and we really were sailing these old open boats that are just a hull and a sail and a tiller and a handheld compass and to me this was a, a terrifying rig and to Ian it was an exhilarating one and this is us leaving Stornoway Harbour on the Isle of Lewis about to sail south. Am I still audible or do I need to bellow? I mean I'm a teacher so I can really I can yell and a parent. Um, <laughs> So, so we're sailing for the Shants, their little island group in the Minch. Mid-morning departure, Stornoway Harbour, which is also known as the Hoyle. Hints of oil, hints of hooli, sound of boat slip, reek of diesel. Broad bays wake through the harbour, a tugged line through the fuel slicks on the surface. Our keels slurring petrol rainbows, light quibbling on the swell. We nose through the chowder of harbour water, kelp oranges, milk bottles, sea gunk. Big seals floating here and there, their nostrils and eyes just above the water, their blubbery backs looking like the puffed up anoraks of murder victims. Nostrils up, snort, snort, duck to rinse and then dive with a final flip of the flukes. And out we went by oar, sail and tow past the drug money pleasure gardens and castle of James Matteson, who in 1844 used half a million pounds of the money he made pushing opium to the Chinese to buy the whole island of Lewis. Out past the lighthouse, out past the headlands, the sea opening like a cone into the minch. The sun above us bright and high, but the sky darkening swiftly further out. Black sky reefs of cloud to the east, the wind a near southerly. Let's get the sail up, show the people that we're leaving well, said Ian. So I hoofed and hauled the big yard to the spar top. The main sheet was tightened and lightly jammed. The terracotta sail luffed, then filled. Broad bay surged southwards through the water and my heart leapt in my chest. Our wake spooling white behind us, our track record. 
the water going past fast with a hiss like poured sand. I mean, Ian, I mean, the book is about stories and about how landscapes tell stories, Paz in particular. And Ian is a wonderful storyteller. And he has, one of the ways he's tracked the sea roads is by tracking the stories that have moved along them, noticing where they've made landfalls in different places and found different tellings as part of the oral culture of the West Coast. Uh, so he's, he's a wonderful companion. Uh, and I'll just read you a little where he tells a, a story and then I'll end with us approaching the shants, and that comes back to this idea of the mirror world. Um, so it'll just... Mostly as a sailor, I did all right that day. Admittedly, there was the moment during attack when I dropped the yard, a 12-foot pole of laminated pine, from 10 feet up, down onto Ian's shoulders. Some disagreement still remains between us over the nature of the incident. I was adamant that the spar's descent had been controlled, if undeniably over-accelerated. Ian was adamant, once he'd stopped swearing, that it had been dropped. <laughs> On a long tack, Ian told me the story of the blue men of the Minch. In poor weathers or big seas, he said the blue men would come for your boat. They would haul themselves, malicious mermen dripping onto the deck, ready to pull you down. But then, he said, they give you a single chance. The leader of the blue men will cast you a rope. And what he'll do is he'll throw you a line of verse, and one by one, everyone on board, from the skipper down, needs to offer a reply in like rhythm and metre. If one man fails, well, then you've had your chance, and the vessel is pulled down to the seabed with all its men drowned. But if by some miracle all can answer poetically, well, then the ship is freed and the blue men, those slimy bastards, slide away to find another victim. So you see, he grinned, it's eloquence that gets you out of trouble. He's a finely eloquent man. Early afternoon, the shants at last starting to show as dark shapes glimpsed. Outline and texture slowly firming up, the islands and their guardian skerries seen as nibs, teeth, tables, gable ends, chapels. When we were perhaps three miles distant, a band of rain swept in from the east, bringing with it a mist that occluded both coastlines and caused the illusion that the shants were receding in proportion to our approach. And for half an hour or so, we passed over the grey water and through that grey mist, and it felt as if we might be sailing towards a mythic archipelago, a scatter of high Brazils, out of the real world and into a realm beyond verification. Oh, you can see the shapes standing clear now, Ian said, gazing ahead. And then, quietly to himself, what a life, what a life. And then we make it just to the shants under sail. So. I'd, I'd like to stay with this sense of the mirror world because one thing which I found enthralling about this book and which is quite different to your previous books is that there's a constant suspicion of something supernatural of something eerie that mm. in a way this precise concentration on the natural world that you have begins to sort of edge into a sense of the supernatural, a sense of there being something which can't be rationalised or sceptically interrogated. Mm. Do you want to just tell us a few of the kind of incidents that happened to you across that and how they, how the sort of supernatural elements came through? Well, um, there, there, there are, I, I'm, a, I'm a Cambridge uh, teacher and I'm the son of a doctor and I'm an Anglo-Saxon really. And for all those reasons, I should be a, 
an empiricist, which I am. Um, and, and the book has, is mostly told in this hyper-empirical mode of sort of qualia, of intense observation. Uh, but every so often while walking these paths, things happen that couldn't quite be assimilated into... I mean, the empirical is not a means of assimilation, it's a means of record. Um, so I, I, four or five things happened, and I tell them in the same way. I don't try and explain them. Um, there is uh, a fall. I take a, a nasty fall at a point where I've been told to watch out. Well, fine, no problem. Uh, I see a, a large black cat at the end of a long day on the Ridgeway, a winter day on the Ridgeway. Uh, again, possibly uh, a, a feline, possibly a deer, possibly one of the escaped black cats. There is a very, there was a genuinely eerie and up unsettling experience at Chanctonbury Ring on the South Downs, which I now know afterwards to be one of the most haunted places in England in terms of thickness, density of folklore concerning hauntings and particularly the kinds of experience that, that I had. And there's a set of footprints that seem not made by any um, creature or human that I could name or know, which lead, lead me and a series of friends into trouble on, in, the, in the Highlands. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have any further explanation for them. Uh, I think you very nicely called them, when you wrote about the book, a, 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 what was it, a, a pebble in the metaphysical boot which can't be worked out. And I thought that was terrific. And, and I, I can't work it out in the sense of, as you imply, getting it out or explaining it. But, but they happened. And there's a, that doesn't stop them being wonders. Um, there's the, the medieval chronicles, Gervais of Tilbury uh, uh, and others, if you, if you read them, they, what they call a wonder is something that um, exists within the natural. It doesn't rupture the yes. natural. But Na nature has no monsters. Na exactly, but, but can nevertheless, nevertheless can't be explained by the available <laughs> tools. Um, and there's, there's a second answer to that, which is I've long been interested in a, uh, a British, uh, English and Scottish in its different variants, mystical tradition, which is born of empiricism. And these are writers like Nan Shepherd, um, whose glorious The Living Mountain has just been reissued, and I wrote a long introduction to that. Uh, people like W.H. Murray, the mountaineer, um, people who look very, very hard, and, and their empiricism becomes sharpened to such a point that it seems to tear through. It seems to puncture, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, at points. And that kind of constellates around with all these ways of pilgrimage, ways of sort of following medieval saints. Um, I was very curious about what that extra religious dimension gave to it. I mean, one of the great walking lines is when T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland talks about the two people walking together always feeling there's a third there with them. I mean, was that something that you came across yourself or was it? Well, he, uh, Eliot famously um, takes that from Shackleton's experience when he's crossing South Georgia, when he's, he talks about the fe the, having felt that there was a third uh, beside, or another man beside him, and that then finds its way in one of the very interesting ways in which um, Golden Age exploration begins to influence high uh, modernism. Uh, that's one of those strange points of contact when language at low temperatures starts to freeze, um, freeze modernism. Uh, but uh, the, the, the book ends with an epilogue where I was, I was fortunate enough to follow a set of Mesolithic footprints that had been revealed in the intertidal silts up near Formby. And a friend of mine up there called me and said, there's been this incredible exposure that a big tide has come in, has stripped away a mud stratum and has revealed these footprints left by Mesolithic walkers, a man and a woman the man probably about six foot three inches, the woman about five foot seven inches. We can reconstruct height 
and gait and to some degree purpose from the impress that they have left. And these were left on a hot baking day around 5,000 summers previously. And that probably was the eeriest walk that I took, was knowing and yet not knowing the people whose footprints I walked beside 5,000 years later. Sort of being the third person to those two. Exactly, yeah. Although there is this kind of um, anxiety about the, the non-rational in it, that doesn't preclude politics in this book, and that walking is, as Will Self says, a deeply political act. Uh, can you, well, should we talk a bit about the sort of Palestinian walks and we the ways, do that, yeah. and, and also the ways in which the UK walks were political as well? Uh, well, I mean, I could just, if I take us to Palestine visually, that, those are the shants. Um, it's like sitting at, you know, on a sofa and you get the photo album. <laughs> uh, that's Granny at 87, and here she is at 90. Well, um, that's, uh, that's the jubilee on the way up to Suleskia, uh, uh, in a big, a big but calm sea. Um, that's Suleskia, the Gannet Island, 40 miles northwest of Lewis. Uh, that's Lewis and walking over down to Harris through the interior. I won't get a chance to tell you about this man, but... Um, we, we, we will come oh, back to some of the okay. other characters. I, it's just I can't reverse. Ah. Oh. So I was going <laughs> to... That's not, that's that not seems a general proposition. for a walker. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, walking backwards is perhaps the most difficult part. Yeah. Um, um, before we get to the politics, though, okay. I mean, we can talk about the way in which the book is haunted by other presences. Okay. And you know, you're constantly referring to other literary walkers, to artists, to land art. So this is the great... Uh, th this is the great Steve Dilworth. Um, and if, uh, and uh, he features... Uh, I walked from the west coast of Lewis down to into Harris, uh, sleeping in these wonderful beehive sheilings as I went and, um, and knocking. I mean, I met with such hospitality along, along the many ways I walked, and that was, a, that was one of the features. I mean, people do always say, oh, I went walking and I was welcomed in off the way, and you think, oh, what hokum, but... I was, uh, again and again, and Steve is one of the people who welcomed me in off the way, though when I entered Steve's house, this little, in a little village on, it called Gearcrab on Harris, I, I wasn't sure I'd ever come out again. <laughs> um, and he has those big, um, it's a mark of a murderer, I think, he has those big chest freezers that open like, because um, <laughs> uh, if, if you're storing bodies, you don't want drawers, you just want that, yeah. And, um, and this is his workshop. He makes just some of the most astonishing sculpture I know and some of the most Hebridean sculpture I know out of found materials from whalebone and, and dolphin teeth and, and, and wood and stone, all, all from the area. And he scours the rack line and creates these objects of astonishing um, uh, tribal power, as he says, made for a tribe that's never existed. Anyway, and his most famous piece is this, um, uh, this hanging figure, which is a human skeleton reclothed in calf, calf flesh, which he made in the 70s and preserved using an extraordinary formaldehyde recipe derived from a 1920s Amazonian expedition. Um, but uh, which, yes, he was one. Eventually, he wants to basically kissed inside a boulder. Well, he, he st when I was there with Steve a few years ago, his great project was to take the hanging figure, which has been his. I'm talking about the one who walks beside. I mean, he's yeah. happily married to Joan um, and has been for many years. But the third presence in their marriage is um, is this uh, per person, um, this hybrid. Uh, who's followed them round and who sort of cohabits rather, you know, quietly with them. Um, but the idea was that Steve would, um, this is in the interior of Harris, the great trackless interior of Harris, into which Steve actually has grooved by walking his own, as it were, sacred path. Uh, 
and the idea was that he would chop the top off this boulder, um, core it, place the skeleton inside the, where the core was, and then reseal it and create a, a, a great kist, a great chamber. As it turns out, he sold it to a collector in Chicago. <laughs> um, so it now hangs in a gallery in Chicago, and, and the boulder is unmolested. How do you choreograph these exchanges with the past in it, with, with both contemporary artists and with the sort of walkers who've gone before you, people like Borrow, people like Thomas? Well, uh, one, of the premise, one of the things that drew me into this book is this very, actually a very English idea in terms of the literature that paths are haunted places. And yet, of course, it's not, it's not a literary notion. I mean, any, any, anyone who has walked an old path has, will have had some sense of that notion that earlier walkers have, have, have made it, are invested in it, uh, in, in, if only in terms of their material footfall. And it's not far from that to, to this idea of, um, of, a, of a connection that, that, that placing feet where feet have been placed is, uh, is, is a way of walking backwards in time. And that's what preoccupied Edward Thomas, George Borrow, um, to some degree, and has really preoccupied a long line of, of English wayfarers. It, it, it's, I, I found that the limits of that method, as it were, while walking, and, and actually the book finds its way more and more to the, to the contemporary and to living people. And uh, what I discovered is sort of what I knew and what we all know, is that walking is actually a, it's a cutting edge technology. It's, it's our oldest means of knowing, and it's our oldest means of motion, but it's actually one we still use astonishingly powerfully and ubiquitously to know in ways that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So conservationists making foot transects in the Himalayas, sculptors who can only make their work by walking, everyday people who can only find certain kinds of consolation by walking to certain places. When you describe it in that way, it sounds very like the kind of um, work on psychogeography in cities that the situationists did. And I, I wondered, I mean, although you're classed as a nature writer, is part of this taking those, the derives that the situationists did, or Ian Sinclair's kind of urban walking, and putting it into a rural landscape? Uh, no. Is, is, uh, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> is the short answer. Though I've been, I've, I do know, I've been lucky enough to walk with Ian and with, with, with Will Self. At, um, uh, it's, it's not situationism because it's not trying to disrupt the terrain of the familiar uh, for, um, uh, for the purposes that um, de Boer and others were, were, were interested in. I, I suppose... But the book does constantly disrupt the familiar in terms of making us see afresh, you know, removing that patina of, of familiarity. I suppose that's true, actually. And there is a, there is a, there's a line which comes up again and again, which is one of Ian's lines. He's, he's teaching you how to read water, and he says, look for disturbances to the expected. Um, and, and this is the basis of what I call his pilot poetics, and that anyone who's reading water needs to be able to look for disturbances to the expected. And I suppose, actually, that is, that is true of, of, of how I'm interested in how we, we read a landscape. So perhaps it is disruptive in that sense, and I do, uh, I do want us to be um, curious and astonished um, by, by the places through which we move. Um, but we're also constituted and thought by our places in ways that are, are beyond our knowing. Um, and Edward Thomas, uh, who, who runs through the book as a figure and then becomes, uh, the, there is a sort of um, summoning back, a fa failed summoning back of him in a late chapter called Ghost. Thomas became very, very interested in this. He, t he talks about how pebbles draw out Parts of my uh, draw out parts of my thought beyond my thinking, and he's just beginning to grasp at those kinds of, of knowledge that are brought to us by place and by our passage through place. 
Um, and I think that's, that's slightly different to the kinds of quite, quite politicized in a, in a... And quite frenzied as well. Uh, I mean, there is a, a sense in which your walks are all meditative rather than, um, rather than kind of frenetic, the way that both Self and Sinclair are. Yeah, well, there, there was a, a lovely early review of the book in The Spectator, and the one criticism that the reviewer had was he said, McFarlane never meets a dickhead. Um, <laughs> and he said all the people he meets are calm and centered and meditative. And um, uh, he says, that's not my experience of travel. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a very good line and one I've used a couple of times since, but uh, it, well, it wasn't my experience of travel either. I did meet um, a lot of dickheads, but um, they don't interest me, uh, so I don't write about them. That's not to imply that Ian Sinclair and Will Self are dickheads or that uh, dickheads are frenzied um, in, in, any, in, in any way. It's, I, I am drawn to, to chronic kinds of knowing, I suppose, uh, and that may be, that may be my failing. Just unpack that phrase, chronic kinds of knowing. Well, um, kinds of knowledge that come into being um, uh, uh, over time, um, I mean, over, over longer periods of time. So, I mean, I am drawn to people who know their places very, very well and who have come to know them by, by long periods of uh, acquaintance. Um, I think that that may also be why I'm drawn to, to, to the novel, um, which Proust said was, was the, the unparalleled instrument for recording what he calls the heart's intermittences. And he's talking about the kinds of rhythms of being and knowing and emotion that, that take time, that are... that. Um, and walking takes time. I say that, but the book ends with a two-minute walk and a 30-yard walk, which opens in me kinds of thinking that I will never have again. So all my, all my notions about scale and distance are, are, are given the lie by that ending. So, Can we move on to the politics and the... There we go. This is just such a terrifying image. Um, yeah, so we're in, we're in Palestine now, we're on the West Bank in, in Ramallah, uh, where I walk with Raja Shahada, who many of you will know, he's uh, often in the festival, he may even be here. This year, yeah. Are you here, Roger? No, he was at the festival oh, right. this year. Yes, Roger, are you here? It's, it's turned into a séance. Um, More summoning of ghosts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I was with him here last year talking about about this, and I'll be up in Aberdeen with him uh, later this week. Um, uh, he's a walker who's. Um, I mean, walking. We have walked for so many purposes, of course. Um, and, that, and one of them is civil disobedience. And uh, that's uh, Roger and some of his friends walk out of Ramallah as a means for them of defeating the space of the occupation. A way of, and the book is dedicated to those who keep the paths open. And by that, I mean the children who run along them, the volunteers, many of whom will be here, who, who remake paths, those who walk paths to, to keep the rights of way going. This is, this is someone who walks to keep paths open um, despite great, great difficulty. Uh, th these are not the uh, bullets of um, uh, settlers uh, or Israeli soldiers. These are the, the, the casings of, of Palestinian militants. And it's, it's by no... I mean, we, we set off um, through this limestone landscape of the West Bank. And deep, deep time is one of the consolations. Deep time is a, is a political experience uh, for Raja because it is... The, the knowledge that he is walking on what, what was once a seabed in the Cretaceous is... Is, is one of the few ways in which he can escape the, the, the insistent here and now of, of life on the West Bank. Um, and, and so walking becomes at once a political inscription, but also uh, a, an escape into depths of history that render contemporary politics ludicrous. How does the politics map onto the contemporary British sections of the book? Uh, uh, 
tacitly. I mean, uh, walking walking uh, is a, is a political act in in that it is a declaration of freedom. It is a uh, in in the ways in which I'm particularly interested in it. It is uh, um, an assertion of, of of rights to be in certain places, but is also implicitly involved with certain kinds of thinking that are gift-based, that are uh, non-monetized, largely. Um, it's a way of walking ourselves out of, out of the market, out of capital, into a world where things are given to us by, in terms of thought and sight, um, and new relations and conviviality can be experienced. So in a very simple and um, companionable sense, uh, walking is a, uh, for pleasure is a political act. Um, but, but more explicitly, the Broomway is kept open. I took Raja walking in East Anglia, and he was thrilled by the, the way farmers, I mean, he just couldn't believe that farmers left unplowed grass causeways across their fields because that was where the right of way ran. And I have a wonderful photo, which I don't have here, of him standing celebratorily on this great grass causeway. And it, it, a fantastic vindication of the English rights of way system. I mean, it's something that you developed in the wild places, but is also in the, the old ways, that there's also something political about the wonderful stirring landscapes of the north of Scotland and northwest of Scotland, and these empty places which are actually emptied places. Yeah. Can you just discuss a little bit the, the ambivalence that one feels towards those landscapes? Well, uh, I mean, we, uh, everyone here will, will know that, of course, the, the, the qualities of Caledonian wildness that are celebrated in the works of Landseer and Scott and Victoriana generally... Caledonia, stern and wild, meet nursemaid for poetic child. The, the benefits of... Be, one of the many benefits being interviewed by, by Stuart is that he... he yes, you, you have much of, um, much of Scott. That was Scott, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was like when you go out along the thin branch, it's just cracking behind you. It held, it held to the trunk. Um, uh, and and we, we know that this is a, 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 a historical um, perspectival error, that, that, that there's the remoteness and emptiness and depopulation and de dehistoriedness is, um, is, is a political site. Uh, it's one that has great power over us and draws many people to the mountains. Uh, and we, we carry out our own editing and our airbrushing of, of power lines and shielding ruins and so forth. Uh, yet it can't be disposed of completely because uh, the sublime, for all its problems, is an extremely powerful and I think um, ethically, actually ethically, very helpful uh, experience. Uh, Thoreau says we need to witness our own limits transgressed. Uh, that's why he yeah. says we need wildness. And I think that, that idea of, of the modesty that certain kinds of great landscape can instill in us is, is, is very important. I find myself still drawn to it. But we need, the history needs to be known as it is. Can we have the uh, third reading and then we'll, we'll open up to the audience? Uh, yes, yes. Um, well, actually, what, what I'll do is I'll just duck back to the chalk, just because we, we've talked a little about the, the, the spiritual. Um, actually, no, let's have a bit of Dilworth, because we, we've heard about Dilworth, I beg your pardon. Sorry, this is, I haven't shown you this bit. Um, all right. Uh, I knocked on Steve's door after my crossing of the Lewisian Moor, footsore, sweaty, and faintly apprehensive. There were shuffling and banging noises from inside the house. The door opened. A figure filled the frame. A hand of welcome was extended. Steve was wearing a matrix-length coat and slippers. Tall and fair-haired with high cheekbones 
and bristling yellow eyebrows, he looks like a warlock or a Viking raider. And if you only knew Steve from his work and from his appearance, you'd be intimidated by him. Imagine him severe and forbidding, but in fact he's good-natured and clownish, which is a relief, for a shaman who took himself seriously would be insufferable. Within a few minutes of arriving, I was at the kitchen table with a coffee in one hand and a gin and tonic in the other, telling Steve and Joan about the night in the beehive shielings and the discovery of Manus's path. A stuffed guillemot regarded me quizzically from on top of a wall-mounted speaker, and on a three-foot-deep southern windowsill sat what looked like the bronze skull of a praying mantis, two feet long and with bulging eyes. Stacked under the window were dozens of empty bird's egg display cases, dark pine, glass-topped, segmented by fine wooden partitions, with cotton wool nests ready to receive each blown dead egg, and copper-plated name cards to identify the species, Sardinian goldfinch, greenshank, red-billed tern. The Dilworths came to the Outer Hebrides because it was one of the few places in Britain where they could afford to buy or beg or borrow or build a house. And it turned out that Harris also supplied Steve with the raw materials for his art. He found himself on a coast where he could walk the rack line each day to see what it held, and where he could live cheaply in a landscape of animal rituals, megaliths, weather dramas, and excellent malt whiskies. When he first suggested we move to Harris, Joan remarked, I thought he said Paris. <laughs> so of course I agreed straight away. <laughs> it took me a while to work out my mistake. The best description I have heard of Steve's art is his own. I have spent my life making ritual objects for a tribe that doesn't exist. Among the materials he uses in his work are the skulls, beaks, bodies, eyes, skins, and wings of herons, wrens, guillemots, gannets, woodcock, fulmers, swans, owls, sparrowhawks, buzzards, black-backed gulls, hooded crows, puffins, sand eels, John Dorys, and dragonflies, tallow, lard, blubber, sperm, seawater collected during equinoctial gales, fresh water gathered from a deep well, still air gathered in a chapel. And I really think... Yes. <laughs> Can we have the house lights up? Uh, who'd like to kick off with the first question? There's a roving mic. Anyone? Just to this person here. Oh, I was uh, interested in the idea of, sort of pilgrimages and uh, whether you feel the actual the act of carrying out the pilgrimage is often more important than where you're going, and also whether you feel that maybe the sort of the long distance paths which are so popular today, whether it's the Pennine Way or the West Highland Way, are they like our modern pilgrimages? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a, a very, a very good question, especially the idea of what's happened to the pilgrimage. Well, one thing that's happened to it is that the, the, the sacred pilgrimage, as it were, the religious pilgrimage, is, is undergoing a, a huge revival. I wrote a, an essay about this in The Guardian not so long ago, uh, um, but in 1987, I think it was, 2,700 people roughly received the Authentica, the, uh, the Certificate of Completion at Santiago de Compostela. Um, in 2007, it was more than 270,000. Uh, this is happening across faiths, it's happening across countries. Uh, I'm fascinated by, the, as it were, the secular or, the, or the, the, the spiritual rather than religious versions, improvised individual or group pilgrimages that are happening as well and the, and the marks that are left by, by the people who do them. Um, to answer the first part of your question, Rowan Williams says, 
uh, he gave a wonderful uh, lecture at Christmas this year about the pilgrimage revival, and he said something like, um, place works on the pilgrim. That's the best definition of pilgrimage I can come up with. So that idea, which is central to the book, of, of, of movement and thought as being um, uh, cooperative, collaborative. And so, I mean, absolutely, uh, the motion of the pilgrimage is, is crucial. Though, of course, people undertake pilgrimages in limousines and planes and, um, uh, and not just on foot. Though, though the foot pilgrimage is durably uh, um, uh, successful as a, as, a, as a means of proceeding. I've met so many people who've left so many marks along the way. I met a, a potter who walked to Santiago and, and she would gather clay at the end of each day from the side of the road when she was passing through clay sections and just mould little pots, beautiful pots, uh, show me a picture of one, and just leave them by the side of the path and then carry on. And this strange urge to mark your passage, but anonymously, seems again very much part of that communion uh, of, of the pilgrimage. There was a question just here. <laughs> it is about walking, so you can... <laughs> We can have one from, one over from there, there next time. Yeah. I haven't read your book, so this is an, an innocent question. Do cities hold any old ways, and do you cover them? Uh, it's, it's a very good question. Um, Holloway in London. Um, I mean, in, in the cities, of course, they, they tend to have been uh, d uh, developed over and survive more as place name, uh, uh, the kinds of, as it were, dowsing out that. that Ian in, in Sinclair in particular is interested in um, the persistence of, of history or if you, in the territorial imperative of psychogeography of certain kinds of behavior in certain kinds of place. Um, the, um, I don't walk so much in cities in this book, though the previous book kind of folds back round to the wilderness and the wildness that exists in, in cities, and I am, I am very interested in them. Uh, I've met some wonderful urban historians who have told me all about the history of, of the Holloway, of, of, of Holloway itself. And many, many cities have their, their old versions of these paths, but they, they tend not to be maintained by foot uh, anymore. And those, those really are the paths that have preoccupied me most in this book, although it was 200,000 words when I first finished it. So I felt it could have, you know, they, it could have been another, another 100,000. I was rather curious. That, I mean, you, it, it's wonderful that you have sections set outside of the UK, but when I was reading it, I kept wondering when the part would come about China, because you did that wonderful essay in Grant about walking in cities yes. being constructed as part of the Olympics. What was the rationale behind Oh, well, see, actually, Stuart's part? come to myself. Yes, I'm sorry, I read a long essay about writing, <laughs> writing in, uh, walking in Beijing in 2007, uh, following, um, uh, the, the, I mean, Beijing was constructed according to, um, uh, as it were, ge um, sort of geophanic principles, and there is a north-south axis to the city. Um, and I walked that, even as it was busy being refolded, re as it were, for the Olympics in this extraordinary convulsive year running up to 2008. And it was fascinating to see this strange respect still there for the, for the old line of the city combined with this desire to modernize uh, ultra rapidly. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, I've, cities overwhelm you with information. That's what they do. They proliferate sign and text. Mm. Um, and actually, once you learn to read them more, uh, natural landscapes do that, do that too. Um, uh, Sinclair is brilliant at, at, at catching the textual residue and the runoff of cities. I, I get slightly, um, the data inputs are too many and too profuse. Can we take some more questions? I'll shout. 
Has no, if you just wait, because it, then everyone can hear. It's, I know it's annoying, but... I'm interested in the relationship between the wild places and the old ways. The old ways sounds, on the face of it, conservative. Uh, the other book is about the wild places. I take it that there isn't a paradox here, because the point of the wild places is that the wilderness is much closer than we think, that it's yeah. not a far destination at all, that it's immediate, and you just have to open your eyes and let space work on you. Well, um, I think uh, I remember when I was looking at titles for this book, thinking about titles for this book, I, I was worried about the old ways because I, I was worried. I don't, I don't think the book is conservative because I, I think it's about, it's, about the mo it's about the moment and it's a little about what I've been trying to say about how powerfully and um, instantly and ongoingly shaped we are by the landscapes we inhabit. It's not an attempt to walk one's way back into an Edwardian or indeed a, a Cretaceous era <laughs> in, in, in which we might live better. It's an attempt to think very hard about how, how intricately and dynamically the landscapes we live in change and shape the people we are. Um, and I was worried that the old ways would, would make it sound like a conservative project. So I, I, we, we went through many covers for the book. And the publisher would, who they brilliant, Penguin have done brilliantly, but they, they would come back with a Batsford cover again and again. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say Batsford. These 1930s, sort of bosomy English countryside, lovely pastel colours and a chalk landscape disappearing off into a cricket game by the, by the church. I said, no, no, this is so... We eventually settled on Richard Long and this modernist, or very modern, sans font and a, and a strong colour. And I, I hope that, that uh, and I hope a little of what I've been saying today as well explains at least what I hope for the book, is that like the wild places, it is interested in the contemporary. It's how, how the wild might coexist with the human here, how, um, how our, our landscapes might be so much more involved with our thought than, than we often give, give them credit for, and, well, and what precedes we, our thoughts. Indeed. We'll take them both, well, we take this one first and then that, and I think that'll be... Hi, uh, hi um, over here. Uh, um, I can't wait to read your book, and uh, uh, what I love about your writing is the way that you understand how we think as we walk, but I wonder, could you say anything about what happens to our bodies as we walk? I'm thinking, you know, Robert Frost's great poem about remembering the instep on his feet, you know, and especially we've got a particular political reason for asking this question because Steve Goff, who the um, the media called the Naked Rambler, we have imprisoned for six years in Scotland because he he wants the full sensory experience of the sublime by walking naked. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's kind of uh, the soul and the soul, isn't it? The soul, the soul of the soul. Well, I I, I haven't I I only seen. A uh, bit about the, the Steve Goff case, and I haven't followed it, so I, I don't know any of, of his account of why he does it. But the, there are sections in the book about barefoot walking, um, uh, and and um, uh, and and how differently we feel the landscape when we are bared to it in in that sense. Um, not uh, not. I mean, I'm 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 no uh, I'm no. I don't want to say hippie. I mean, I live in a suburb. I teach at a university. Um, I walk with my shoes on most of the time. But 
I did become fascinated as I walked by how differently the landscape felt when we were in contact with it by foot. Sometimes it felt really sore because I stepped on a holly leaf or, or a hawthorn twig. Um, but other times, you, you begin to see it differently and feel it differently. And actually, our feet are what are in contact with the world most of the time. But of course, we're shod most of the time. Um, the body is deeply involved with thought, with our thought. I mean, the, the, the dualism is, uh, is, is, is long gone, really. Um, and so, yes, it's about feel and touch and the tactile. And I, I wanted to fill the book with sensation and texture and, and show it in action, I suppose, how, how deeply involved that is with thought. Yeah. I think we had one question just here. Uh, about 10 years ago, I walked with a group of friends through the Himalayas to uh, Upper Mustang, Lomantan. And without trying to, we developed rituals while we were walking. I wonder, do you have any rituals that you obey while you're walking? Ah, well, I was going to say, I always carry a red hot chilies with me um, because uh, nothing zings up my endorphin levels like uh, raw capsaicin. Um, uh, so that, that's not really a ritual of the way, that's more self-medication. Um, but that, that's strong for me. Um, it's a very, very good question. Um, and I, 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 like many people, I make cans. Um, uh, I long ago realized I was no Andy Goldsworthy. But I love making small and beautiful structures, uh, the, the simplest of can um, towers where I go. And, and I've recently developed into making um, uh, chambered cans. Um, so they take rather a lot longer. Um, and building up a corbelled structure with a, with a capstone on top. Um, but really, you can't walk very far if you're making a, <laughs> a chambered can every time you stop. But, um, but, and I found them everywhere. I mean, we'll all know them. I mean, not just the, the as it were, the Munro mountain cairns, but those, those ones which have been canned with care, um, and, and Manus's stones, which feature in this wonderful, uh, I was introduced to by F Finley MacLeod, who's this wonderful Lewisman. Um, they're, they are, they're a functional cairn line, which Manus, who was a crofter on the Ardbeg Peninsula and, and laid this trail, um, clearly began to design in some way. And again, we're back to that, that, that point where function and, and form coincide and the strange, sometimes inadvertent beauties of, of path making and mark making emerge. Just to conclude, what's next? I mean, you've done this trilogy. Um, is it a project that's underway at the moment or? Well, um, the, the project that's underway is pregnancy, really. I'm not obviously on my part. Congratulations. Um, but um, uh, but uh, so I, I'm, I'm trying desperately not to think of another book because I just want to concentrate on being uh, a dad again after a seven-year break, and I'm ready for the, 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 the deluge. But, uh, but also, I, I, I said this was the end of a trilogy precisely so I could stop writing about place and landscape and topography. I kind of had to commit to it, but I can already... I can already feel I want to write something else about it. So it's going to be the, trilogy, the N plus one um, um, is what it's going to be. But anyway, well, you know, I'm sure in time. the audience will agree with me that we would really love to see more in this game <laughs> from you. Please come and continue the conversation with Robert. We'll be in the signing tent next door where you can buy copies of not just The Old Ways, but his previous books as well. And please join me in thanking both our, our wonderful signer, Rachel. And the wonderful Robert McFarlane. Oh. <laughs>
Thank you very much. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.